Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Thing to Breakdown, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, ajcbreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background. Justin Chapman was charged with setting fire to his own house, a fire that spread quickly and killed an elderly woman who lived alone next door. The sort of thoughtless, heartless crime that should land you in prison forever. Unless you didn't do it. Justin is innocent, and the evidence against him is weak and, frankly, completely inaccurate. I remember him saying, how sure are you on a scale of 1 to 10, that this guy is innocent. I said 11. He told people that he did it. He was seen by a neighbor after, immediately after the fire was set. That is how simple the case is. I'm convinced he had nothing to do with the, the murder and the fire, the arson. The pieces don't fit. He's innocent. I mean, he's going to come home one day. No matter what they do, he's coming home. Maybe Justin Chapman didn't do it, and maybe he did. But guilty or not guilty, he spent almost eight years in prison for arson and murder. Hey, my name's Bill Rankin. I've been covering legal affairs for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for more than 20 years. I've covered thousands of court cases, hundreds of trials and hearings. But I've never seen a case quite like Justin Chapman's. The system failed just about every step of the way. And a few determined folk work long and hard, for free, to try to win him a new trial. This is our pilot episode of what we're calling Breakdown. The format is inspired by the incredibly popular serial by Sarah Koenig. Now, obviously, I'm not Sarah Koenig. I'm a newspaper reporter. I'm used to writing stories, not speaking them. But I do have an important story to tell you. And I hope you'll come back in succeeding weeks for the next chapters in the story. Let's begin with what happened at the end of Justin Chapman's trial. We have a verdict in the case, and so uh, I don't have any idea what the verdict's going to be, but I would simply ask that uh, there be no public outburst whatsoever, regardless of what the verdict is. All right, Ms. Parker, if you'd publish the verdict as to both counts. State of Georgia versus Justin Wayne Chapman. Um, count one felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. 
this 29th day of June, 2007. Count two, arson in the first degree. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty this 29th day of June, 2007. I've covered numerous criminal trials from the opening to the closing gavel, and there's really nothing like the moment when the verdict is read. You know, bum bum. You've seen the jury foreman read the verdict on TV crime shows countless times. But it's really nothing like TV. Here's the difference. The one thing you can't get on TV. A real person's life is at stake. A real person, like you or me. In a real criminal court, the verdict marks the end of that person's ordeal, or the beginning of something far worse. Most times, it seems to me, the jury gets it right. The guilty guy is put away, or the innocent guy is set free. But there's one other thing about covering a criminal trial that's constantly amazed me. You sit through the trial and you watch and listen to all the witnesses, all of whom have sworn to tell the truth. You look over all the evidence, you hear both the defense and prosecution versions of the case. But at the end, even though you believe the jury got it right, you still feel like you don't know exactly what happened. Sometimes the reasons are obvious. Maybe two key witnesses gave conflicting versions of what happened. Other times, it's more subtle. For whatever reason, your gut is telling you, you still don't have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In 1991, for example, I covered my first death penalty case. That's the kind of trial where there should be no doubt about who committed the murder. The only question should be whether the killer deserved the ultimate punishment. And this case was awful. It was heart-wrenching. A marketing executive rushing out of work to meet his wife and four sons for dinner. He was abducted in his office parking lot. He was later bludgeoned to death with a sawed-off shotgun. But after closing arguments, I had no idea if the guy on trial actually struck the fatal blows. And jurors later said that's why they couldn't sentence him to death. I've also covered my share of exoneration cases, some that blew my mind. The most memorable was a rape case in Meriwether County, south of Atlanta. It happened in 1979. The 74-year-old victim was asleep on her couch when her attacker broke into her home. He raped her and then beat her so severely her face was left partially paralyzed. Police arrested a suspect and put him in a lineup at the local jail. And the rapist was, in fact, in the lineup. But the victim didn't choose the man who attacked her. She chose someone else. Amy Maxwell, executive director of the Georgia Innocence Project, worked that case. I don't think there's another case where there's actually a photograph of a live lineup that contains both the person who was wrongfully convicted and the person who really did it. The guy she identified was convicted at trial and sentenced to life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He was only cleared 28 years later when DNA testing proved the other guy in the lineup the one the elderly woman did not identify, committed the crime. To read my coverage of that case and see the photo of the lineup, go to our special website, ajcbreakdown.com. It was really quite a shock and quite an amazement when we realized that the real perpetrator was in the picture with him. In fact, after the um, exoneration hit the news, every eyewitness expert in the world wanted a copy of it because they said, you know, they had done that, those kinds of experiments, but they'd never seen it in real life. Astonishing stories like this one have exposed fractures across the nation's criminal justice system. There have now been more than 300 post-conviction DNA exonerations, and 20 of these people served time on death row. 
But those exonerations may never have occurred without the presence of DNA evidence. From hair, skin cells, bodily fluids. Without that hard scientific evidence? Here's Maxwell again. When you have DNA evidence in a case, it can tell you who committed the crime, and it completely exonerates an individual in a lot of the cases. Any other kind of evidence that's not based in such hard science may chip away at the prosecution's theory, but it doesn't completely prove who did or did not commit the crime. You guessed it. In Justin Chapman's case, there is no DNA evidence. In fact, there's no physical evidence at all tying him to the crime. I didn't sit through Justin Chapman's trial, but I've read thousands of pages of court documents and transcripts. I've interviewed everyone involved in the case I could get a hold of, and I'm pretty sure that jurors in this case didn't get the whole story either. My experience does not tell me whether Chapman is actually innocent. I really don't know that. But here's what my experience does tell me. Justin Chapman did not get a fair trial. The right to a fair trial is one of the fundamental guarantees in the United States Constitution. There is no footnote, no exception, no subparagraph D that says poor people in rural Georgia don't get a fair trial. Unfortunately, Georgia's indigent defense system has plenty of these stories. So we have two tales to tell. One's a mystery. Who killed the woman who lived next door to Justin Chapman? The other's a tragedy. How could we permit a system this broken to send people like Justin Chapman to prison for life? And in his case, the system didn't just break down once. It broke down repeatedly. Michael Kaplan, one of Justin Chapman's new lawyers, puts it this way. This case is an example of a case that has simply fallen through the cracks at each level of our system. The Constitution requires when you prosecute someone for a crime that the state disclose the evidence against him and particularly disclose the favorable evidence for his case. That was not done. The Constitution requires that the accused be afforded an effective lawyer. Uh, Mr. Chapman was denied that effective lawyer, both at his trial and his direct appeal. The Constitution requires that you have an opportunity to confront the witnesses against you. And Mr. Chapman was denied that right as well. We'll be talking a lot about fundamental rights in this story, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that somebody died here. Somebody who was alone, defenseless, and completely innocent. Alice Jackson, 79 years old, was known to neighbors as Ms. Alice. In 2006, Ms. Alice was a widow living out her years on one side of the duplex at 113 Sharp Street in the little town of Bremen, Georgia. With a population of about 6,300, Bremen lies 47 miles due west of Atlanta, almost to the Alabama line. That train whistle is something you can't miss during a visit to Bremen. 48 trains rumble through town every day. We have a lot of trains, yes, a lot of trains. We're used to it, but sometimes we, we still fuss because especially when they decide to stop and block off crossings, we don't do real well with that. That's Sharon Sewell, the city's mayor the past 14 years. Her town was named after the German city of Bremen. But like many Georgia towns, Vienna, not Vienna, Cairo, not Cairo, it's pronounced a distinctly southern way, Bremen in this case. The clothing industry came out here in about the 1920s, uh, and those are my genetic family, the Sewells. 
and um, they manufactured men's clothing. There was a time in the 60s when a phenomenal percentage of dress men's clothing that was made in the world was made in Bremen, Georgia. As a young woman, Alice Jackson, Ms. Alice, had been a seamstress in the town built on textiles and railroads. In 2006, she lived on the left side of a duplex on Sharp Street. On the right side lived Justin Chapman and his family. In the days after the fire, the local newspaper would call Ms. Alice the kind of person anyone would love to call a friend or neighbor. She died June 20th, 2006. A fire that killed a 79-year-old woman is being called suspicious tonight. Flames broke out early this morning at the home in Bremen. Neighbors in that community say Alice Jackson was well-known for her laughter and kindness. Jason Hurley was among the firefighters who raced to the scene that night. Today, he's Bremen's fire chief. When we pulled up, it was a single story. Um, looked like an average dwelling. When we arrived, there was heavy fire involved on the front right corner. Arson investigators would later determine the fire was deliberately set. Someone had poured gasoline, or maybe something else, on the front door of Chapman's house. The house, if I recall correctly, was built in the 60s, um, and it was originally a single-story, one-family dwelling that someone had converted into a duplex. So basically it shared a common attic space. It just had one dividing wall separating the two units. So once the fire penetrated from the um, original apartment where the fire began, it was able to travel across and spread very rapidly into her side. Because of all the smoke, firefighters conducted a hands-on search, feeling their way through Chapman's apartment and finding no one there. Hurley was among the firefighters who found Alice Jackson's body next door. She was probably asleep when the fire started and had gotten out of bed. Firefighters found her body under fallen sheetrock in her living room, not her bedroom. Hurley can't forget it. It's it's horrible to see. It's horrible for um, for anyone to have to deal with. I, anytime you have a fatality in a fire, it's memorable. Those just kind of stick with you a little bit more than the everyday run-of-the-mill and occupied house. That was the sound of one of those trains going by. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Justin Chapman was raised by his father and grandparents in Carrollton, a town west of Atlanta and just a few miles south of Bremen. Both Chapman's father, who's also an evangelist, and his grandfather worked on General Motors assembly lines. His grandmother ran a beauty shop in Carrollton. Chapman's younger sister's named Leslie. She said she and her brother were best friends. Justin loved sports. He played basketball, baseball, and football. He often used his allowance to buy baseball cards at a shop nearby. 
The Chapman's father traveled from one church to another, preaching most Sundays. And he raised his children in a deeply religious household. Here's Leslie. We grew up in the church every Sunday, even if you're sleepy, get up and let's go to church. Um, And then after that, we would go to the Waffle House. You know, when you're kids, you kind of look for that, we're hungry type thing. But um, he definitely raised us in the Bible. Leslie says her brother had a gift for math, but it was a gift he would not get to pursue. Instead of being a high school student, he became a father at age 14. So basically, he had a girlfriend um, who was 17 at the time. He was 14. And they dated for a little bit, I guess you would say. Um, I don't think we realized how close they were. I guess after they broke up about maybe seven months later, um, we got a phone call that she was in the hospital with stomach cramps. And she felt really sick. And come to find out, she was delivering Justin's oldest son. She didn't even know the whole time she was pregnant. And that was on um, June 5th. His first son was born Three days later, he turned 15. Yeah, so um, we was all shocked, didn't know what to do. And it's like, oh, I'm an aunt now. What do you do? Um, And he's like, no, wait, I'm a dad. So um, he tried going to school and doing little side jobs like cutting grass and stuff. And obviously that didn't cut it as far as diapers and clothes and everything. Justin soon realized he couldn't keep up with his studies and hold a job, too. So he dropped out of school. He also began taking care of his son. He got him every weekend. He would come to our house because obviously we're still living at home at that age. And um, he would take care of him. I mean, even then, even yeah, I have pictures of them. They're like peas in a pot, you know, up until the fire. Anthony came to stay with Justin every week, and then throughout the summer, you know, he would come and stay, you know, for a week or so. Justin stepped up as a father when he was a young teenager, Leslie says. It was a sacrifice she did not come to fully understand until much later, when she had kids of her own. As a teenager, you don't realize what all he gave up to be a better man, you know, to grow up and be a man for his son. So I didn't appreciate him and what he did for his son at that time. I just thought, oh, you're kind of silly for dropping out of school. You know, but then as I grew up, I'm like, that's what he had to do. So I can respect that. And he did what he needed to do. By the time he was 21, Justin was more independent. He had moved out of the family home. He was earning some steady pay. He was moving forward in life going good. But then he got injured. When he was 21, while working at a grocery store, He ran over his own foot with a pallet jack. That's basically a forklift that you use while standing on the floor. The forks lift up wooden pallets stacked high with grocery cartons. And the whole thing's heavy. Heavy enough to leave Chapman's foot crushed and bloodied when it ran over him. The injury left him with chronic nerve damage. He kind of got put in his place and stopped dead in his tracks because basically when the pallet jack ran over his foot, it went through his foot. His money stopped, and he was doing pretty good. You know, like, he had a new truck. I know he had his own place. It was like a brand-new trailer or something like that um, that he had gotten, and then he had to give all that up. It gets worse. 
By 2006, Chapman was living on disability payments of $218.42 a week. He became addicted to the pain pills prescribed for him after the accident. From there, he followed the familiar path of working-class addicts who can no longer support the pain pill habit. He started using methamphetamine. A few years ago, while in prison, Chapman owned up to his addiction to Danny Sendel, a retired FBI agent working for Chapman's new legal team. He was very honest with me about his drug usage. He had a habit that started after he got hurt at work, started taking uh, pain pills, and he became addicted to pain pills, and he started getting other unprescribed medication on the streets, and it developed into a habit. Chapman's lawyers declined to let me interview Chapman, but he did write me a letter from Telfair State Prison in South Georgia. In that letter, Chapman wrote, In June of 2006, my life changed. I was arrested and charged with crimes that I did not commit. In June of 2007, I was found guilty and sent to prison. He added, Despite being convicted and sent away for something I didn't do, I've become a better man in prison. Prison can make you bitter or better. I chose the latter. Chapman said he has earned his GED, he holds Bible study classes, and he's a worship leader at the prison. On the night of the fire, Chapman was a 27-year-old father of four living with his kids and future wife in the duplex on Sharp Street. But before we get to the fire, maybe we should start with the fight before the fire. Shortly after midnight, Chapman, his family, and two friends were at the Chapman home hanging out and playing PlayStation games. We're heading in. We need to get on board and stop the detonation of the rice and cargo. They were startled when someone shattered a window on a van parked just outside the duplex. Then. An angry and drunken man named William Paul Chives banged on the front door. When Chapman's buddy opened the door, Chives squared off like he was ready to fight. Are you Justin? he asked. Chapman, standing off to the side, cleared up the confusion. No, I'm Justin, he said. Chives then announced his grievance. Chapman had called his aunt a red-headed crack whore, and Chives was on a booze-filled mission of revenge. Conversations that begin with the words redheaded crack whore almost never go anywhere good. This was no exception. Before things went any further, Chives pulled out his cell phone, called his brother, and could be heard saying, Let's show these people what we do to people who mess with us Chives. Well, this just made Chapman angry. He pulled out a pistol and beat Chives over the head. Witnesses said after Chives fell to the ground, Chapman asked him if he'd had enough. When Chives said he had... Chapman helped him up and told him to move on. Police soon arrived. They arrested Chives and booked him into the county jail. Well, that provided little comfort to Chapman's family. They were worried that Chives' call to his brother meant that additional Chives could be headed their way. So they packed up the PlayStation, some diapers and bedding, and followed their friends to their home, about a ten-minute drive away. Less than two hours later, the duplex was engulfed in flames, and Alice Jackson was dead. What's interesting is that both leading suspects had left the scene before the fire started. Chives was in jail, and Chapman was at a friend's house. Could Chapman have sneaked back on his own, set the fire, and then returned to his friend's home? The prosecution thought so. The jury believed so. Could Chives have phoned someone from jail and asked that person to go and set the fire? Chives and his brother have denied having anything to do with it, and they were never charged. But wait, hold on. I think we need to back up a bit. 
because before any of this happened, about four weeks before it happened, Chives accompanied a relative who set fire to a house in Carroll County, about 10 miles from Bremen. The reason? Chives' relative wanted to exact revenge on a guy who'd beat up a former girlfriend. Chives was never charged in that fire, but years later, he admitted to an investigator working for Chapman's new legal team that he did indeed help set that house in Carroll County on fire. I know, it sounds crazy, right? Chives was involved in a retaliatory fire just a few weeks before Chapman's house burned to the ground. Is that some kind of bizarre coincidence? Or what? Police have said they looked into any possible involvement in the Bremen fire by Chives and his associates. But it appears they quickly rejected that possibility. Two days after the fire killed Ms. Alice, police officially charged Chapman as the person who set that fire. The police then tried out several theories of the case before they finally settled on one. When I talked to the uh, assistant district attorney who was handling the case, I said, what's, you know, what's your motive here? That's Jan Hankins, the lawyer who represented Chapman at trial. And he said, meth-related fire. There was no meth lab. And I went back and said, you're kidding me. You think this was a meth lab because there was cat litter in the house? And then the, the second state's theory was that he hated uh, the woman who lived in the other part of the duplex, um, and she had died in the, the arson fire, um, and the state's theory was that he hated her and murdered her. And then, you know, as time went on, I was talking to people, and, and they were saying, no, he helped her. Um, he, he looked out for her. And then the state's third theory was that he hated the landlady, that she was making him move. And so this was retribution against her. They never even had a coherent theory. Hankins was a public defender. She lost the case. Her performance at trial represented the first breakdown in the system. But her dogged persistence in clearing Chapman represents his only chance at redemption. And we'll get to her story in just a minute. Police ultimately settled on the theory that Chapman burned his place down to retaliate against his landlord. In the weeks before the fire, she had told him to move out because there were just too many people living in such a small, one-bedroom apartment. But I have to say, I've had a hard time reconciling that as a motive. I mean, the landlord testified at trial that she and her husband were not evicting Chapman and his family. She said she'd only told them to be looking for another place. And Chapman had no renter's insurance, so he had nothing to gain financially. In fact, the fire destroyed his personal belongings, including his late grandfather's keepsakes and his treasured baseball cards. My first impression, aside from anything that Mr. Chapman ever said, the first impression was, this case is ridiculous. They don't have a good case here. The state doesn't have a good case. That's Jan Hankins again. The case may have been ridiculous. But in 2007, Hankins had a ridiculous job. Georgia has 159 counties, and almost all of them have local public defender offices. Let's say you're the local public defender in a small town. A convenience store gets robbed, and two guys are charged in the robbery. They're both poor, and they both need a public defender, which is where you come in. But there's a problem. One guy says he didn't do it and wasn't even there. The other guy says they both did it, and he's going to testify against the first guy. Obviously, as the public defender, you can't represent both of them. 
That's a conflict of interest. So you represent the first guy, but the other guy still needs a lawyer. So they call up what is known in the trade as a conflict defender, and that person represents the other defendant. Hankins was the state of Georgia's conflict defender. In fact, she was the only defender employed by the state for the most serious conflict cases, cases like murder, rape, armed robbery, aggravated child molestation, and so on. Here's the ridiculous part, the totally impossible part. Hankins was based in Atlanta, but Georgia is the largest state east of the Mississippi, and Hankins' clients were scattered all over it. In Valdosta, 225 miles away. In Albany, 180 miles away. In Augusta, 145 miles away. And now, Bremen, 47 miles away. Hankins often spent more time behind the wheel than in the courtroom. And at the time, she had a two-year-old son. She would often wake up well before dawn to make a 200-mile drive for a court appearance. It was pretty intense. It's never been done before or since. Hankins clearly cared about Chapman's case. But by the time it came to trial, she was not prepared. She'd been given a part-time investigator only a few weeks before trial. There was no way she could find and interview all the witnesses necessary to mount a robust defense. She regrets to this day not asking the judge for a continuance to delay the trial so she'd have more time to get ready. Steve Bright, who founded the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta and teaches at Yale Law School, is a nationally recognized expert on public defender systems. He's closely followed the one in Georgia since its inception a decade ago. He said it is inexcusable Hankins was placed in such a position. The fact that one person was trying to do all this is absurd. Uh, This is unfortunately a result of the refusal of Georgia to provide sufficient funding to provide people accused of crimes uh, with counsel. Uh, and this case is a tragic example of what happens when you have lawyer, a lawyer like Jen Hankins who's in Albany one day and in Bremen one day and in Valdosta the next day who can't possibly prepare for trials in all these different places. I mean, doesn't have the time, doesn't have the resources. Bright said it was a no-brainer what Hankins needed to do as the trial neared. You cannot start preparing for a trial, a murder trial. Of this complexity two weeks before trial, and Jen Hankins should have moved to continue the trial uh, until there was she had enough time and she had an investigator and she had whatever other resources she needed to prepare the defense of this man's case. I mean, basically, this case went to trial, and uh, Justin Chapman was defenseless because his lawyers just hadn't had time to get ready for trial. The week-long trial was held in the Harrelson County seat of Buckhannon. I know, here we go again. Most people would call it Buchanan, but this one here, Buchanan. Jurors heard from enough witnesses to find Chapman guilty of the heinous crime. Two witnesses really carried the day. One was a jailhouse snitch who told jurors that Chapman confessed to him that he set the fire. Another was a witness who told jurors he saw a man he believed to be Chapman cross the street a block down from his house shortly before the fire lit up the night sky. This person was walking with a limp away from Chapman's duplex, the witness said. But what jurors didn't hear, what's since been uncovered by Chapman's new legal team and what you'll learn about later, has stunned even Hankins, whose belief in Chapman's innocence has never wavered. So what do you have in that community? You have an elderly woman who was murdered 
and Mr. Chapman and his family, who were the victims of an arson that decimated everything they had. And there is a bad guy or bad guys in that community who were never arrested, who are probably still in that community. And those, those citizens don't deserve that. And the, the relatives of the woman who died, you know, they, they never got justice. And Justin certainly never received justice. Not yet. On the next episode of Breakdown, witnesses who can see in the dark and snitches at the jailhouse. Justin talked to several of us. We had uh, several conversations, and during one of the conversations, he told me that he did set the fire. Do you want to know more about this podcast? Go to ajcbreakdown.com for a timeline, photos of the cast of characters, court documents, and bonus audio and video. Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson. Audio production by Chris Basta of CO3 Sound Atlanta. Story consultant Susanna Capaluto. Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Bert Roten, Eric Netherton, and Brian Anderson. <laughs>